Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Sunday, July the 24th, 2022. It is currently 9.22 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. And immediately you should be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's Sunday. It's 9.22 a.m. and you're coming to us live from Abilene, Texas. Don't you realize you have to be standing behind the pulpit in about 35 minutes at Victory Baptist Church, which is located in the middle of nowhere, Texas, Ovalo, Texas, to be exact? What's going on? Why are you not at the church? Well, let's just say we have a situation currently that's... We'll say right now it's not good, could become serious. We're hoping that's not the case. Here's the situation. My wife tested positive for COVID. She has underlying health issues that can make that far more serious than maybe in a normal situation. And many of you know, because of everything that happened to me in the military, I cannot get the vaccine. So I'm unvaccinated. That means I have zero protection from COVID. So I'm doing everything I can within my power to isolate, to stay away, um, and and just do everything I can to try to stay away from it. In the meantime, you know, if you're going to pray about the situation, don't pray for me. Definitely pray for my wife because her with her underlying health issues, it just makes COVID definitely concerning. Let's say that. I, I don't want to overstate it, but I don't want to understate it. Let's just say it definitely makes it concerning. So please pray about that situation. Again, pray for her, definitely not for me. I'm just going to do everything in my power to uh, hopefully, hopefully not get infected. I'm, 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 I'm going to do my best. And in the meantime, I, I think I'm going to spend a good portion of my life for the next probably five days, five to six days, maybe longer, um, well, up here in what is kind of the well, becoming the Theology Central Studios. <laughs> it's a second story r- room here in the home. And uh, I'm, I'm basically far removed from everything up here. So this is where I'm going to try to stay. If, if I don't develop any symptoms, or even if I develop just very, very, very mild symptoms that doesn't prevent me from, I guess, turning on the microphone and going live, it may actually benefit you. Um, well, it depends on how you view this podcast. If you view this podcast as beneficial, you may it may benefit you because, well, there's nothing to do up here other than really do live podcasting. I mean, I can I can do some reading and stuff like that, but I mean, I don't have everything I would typically want up here. But hey, if staying up here keeps me from becoming infected, then then that would be a positive thing. So we will see. Just all I can say is. Just stay tuned for further developments in this very, well, could become a very difficult situation and transition. Speaking of difficult situations, have you ever heard of the difficult situation of trying to identify something in Revelation chapter 17? Well, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know we've now ended up in a new series, Identifying Babylon, because we are trying to find the identity of Babylon in Revelation chapter 17. 
We've given you a possible five identities, right? Uh, see, if I go through all of them, I'll just, I don't have them in direct order, but we'll, we'll go through just a number of them. One, it just represents the apost- that Babylon is not an actual city. It's not an actual person. It's just really the apostate, it's apostate Christendom. It's apostate Christianity. It could be a apostate, the apostate church, but that would just mean all churches that are apostate, not necessarily a specific one. So apostate Christianity, apostate church. Um, number two, it's an actual city, but John was using code. He, he did, he wanted to talk, he did not want to talk about Babylon. He wanted to talk about Rome. So he had, but he had to do it in code so that he wouldn't be, I guess, killed or for treason or whatever. So he uses the word Babylon, but he really meant Rome or some say, no, what he, what he really meant, he meant a city, but he was using Babylon as code for Jerusalem. Okay. That's another view. And then we, we, <laughs> Then we got kind of silly just to make a point. Then I said, well, okay, well, if it's a if it's a city, if Babylon, if it's not really Babylon, but it's a different city, and Babylon is just a code, well then we could we could possibly plug in pretty much any city we wanted. We could probably make any city work some way, some shape, some form. So we use Dallas, Texas as an example, using different parts of Revelation 17. Like, there you go. It's actually Dallas, Texas. So obviously we're being a little facetious there. And then we argued, well, possibly, maybe Babylon just means, I don't know, actual Babylon on the Euphrates. Actually, that somewhere in the future, there's going to be a restoration of Babylon, the nation, the city. And maybe that's the best way to look at it, right? So, and of course, some would probably say Babylon and Revelation 17 is the Roman Catholic Church. So what we wanted to demonstrate, the the original goal, if you remember, was to go, look, guys, here's Revelation 17, and look at all the different views. In other words, everyone tries to walk around acting so dogmatic and so certain, but the reality is there is so much disagreement on exactly the identity of Babylon and Revelation chapter 17. So I tried to take that fact to give you a very important principle. So many times within the church... From behind the pulpit, you are given certainty at the expense of truth. They give you certainty, but it's costing you truth. What do I mean by that? They stand behind the pulpit and they may say, oh, there's all these different views, but you know what? It's really not that difficult. It's really simple. Here it is. And they give you this sense of certainty, this sense that it's simple, but in reality, they're keeping you from the actual truth of all the difficulties, all the different views so and 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 I believe so many in so many cases, truth really is not that simple. It's not that certain. It leaves you with more questions sometimes than it does answers, and that's what you should you should want truth, not just certainty. And the goal of the church is to equip you so that you will no longer be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. The only way to help, the only way to make that occur is to be honest and go. There's lots of different views out here. You're going to come across them if you read or listen to sermons. So I'm going to make sure you know about all of them right here in the church. That's the way I think it should be done. Sadly, some people just want certainty. They want three points, so they want to be out. They want three points in their sermon. They want it simple. They don't want questions. They don't want difficulties. They just want it simple, and then they want to be out by noon. But Look, there's plenty of churches that will do that way, do that for you. I just think there should be some places that are willing to do things a little differently. So that's what we have tried to do. So, Revelation chapter 17. 
Let's do this. We're going to read it really quick. Revelation chapter 17. I'm just going to, the one thing I can do is, I don't know how long the series is going to go, but I know this. If I keep reading the text over and over and over and over and over and over in every episode, at some point, maybe you'll just have it memorized. And so you say, well, I didn't get any answers, but I have Revelation 17, one through six memorized. Here we go. Revelation chapter 17, verse one. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with wine of her fornication. Verse 3. So he carried me away. In, uh, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abomination, filthiness, uh, and filthiness of her fornication. Then verse 5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. That's Revelation 17, 1 through 6. So we gave you five views, right? Five views. Um, I, and... I, I think we hinted at a few others, but but I say I guess that gets technically now since I've I, I've at least added that you should know that many would say this is the Roman Catholic Church. I guess that's technically six views, but we've given you a number of views, and then we grabbed some sermons or some podcast episodes, which are really edited sermons from Jack Hibbs from his uh, podcast Real Life with Jack Hibbs. <laughs> I'm not going to go back and listen to all the previous episodes of this series. All I can say is what an absolute train wreck that was. There were so many just, I don't even know what to tell you. It was bad. And we, we really, he never really gave us a definitive answer. So there was a part of me that was like, you know what? Let's continue to review some episodes from Jack Hibbs on Revelation 17 and, and allow him to possibly give us his view. We may go back and do that, but this morning, I just wanted to take a little detour. I wanted to just change things up a little bit, and I, we're going to review a sermon on Revelation 17, verses 1 through 18, and this will come more from a, uh, well, it's, it's, it's Lutheran, but it's, I, no, I don't think it's Lutheran. I take that back. Um, I can't, I, I don't want to say, I believe, I don't believe it's a Lutheran church. I believe it's a Reformed church, so um, I just don't know which I mean, reform can, can uh, I don't know which denomination, let me state it that way. So we'll state it this way. This is coming from an amillennial perspective. There we go. I think that's more accurate to say. In fact, this, this individual was very instrumental in my first coming to knowledge and understanding of amillennialism. And then I, my, at least uh, I, how can we say, I, Definitely started leaning towards the mill perspective. I embraced many of its concepts, and now I've kind of moved away from that. But the, he was very instrumental in a lot of my amillennial thinking for a very long time. 
So I, I, again, one of the reasons I'm not grabbing sermons that I think necessarily we will agree with. And just remember, I'm not grabbing sermons that I've already listened to because we don't do that in my sermon reviews. What I've decided to do is I just keep grabbing different things just to show you, hey, look, everyone acts like it's so simple. Remember when we were, we were reviewing the episodes by Jack Hibbs, he was like, it's so simple. It's absolutely clear. And then after multiple episodes of his sermons, what we discovered is he made absolutely nothing clear, but yet he kept trying to act like he was giving everyone this great sense of certainty. It was really very confusing. I just want you to just constantly be aware of how many different views there are out there. And that should make you realize, man, hmm, maybe, maybe, maybe we're not as certain on this as we thought we were. And I, and a lot of Christians don't like that. They get really mad, but it's just a reality. I guess you can just listen to only things that agree with you, live inside a little bubble and convince yourself that that everyone believes this and anyone who doesn't believe it is just absolutely wrong and don't, and you'll probably not even saved, but that's just not the way it works. And so we're going to at least hear this perspective. It's not very long. Um, I think probably maybe, maybe 30 minutes. So uh, we should be able to finish the review. I, I'm going to go a little bit longer if I need to, because I don't want to make this turn this into a, a you know two parts trying to finish this review. But we're just going to listen. I I don't know what again. I never know what's getting ready to happen. I, I love doing the sermon reviews, but it always makes me a little nervous because it's like okay. Are we going to hear something that's like, whoa, can you believe what we just heard? Or when we get done, I'm like, well, I don't really have anything to say. That's that's the nerve wracking part, but it's also the fun part because, well, I don't know what's getting ready to happen. And you, you, it should be more fun for you because you're not listening to something that's been like all rehearsed and planned. And it's more like a performance than actual, hey, let's engage these ideas in a sermon together in real time. So grab a notebook. Open up your Bibles to Revelation 17. Now, with the Jack Hibbs, Jack Hibbs sermons, we didn't need our Bible open to Revelation 17 because and th- we spent, what, three episodes reviewing, and he never really barely referenced Revelation chapter 17, which, well, that, that, that's a whole different story. Here, we will see. I think I, I know the direction we're going with this, but we will see. All right, here we go. Revelation, Revelation chapter 17. Here we go. Okay, long, dramatic pause of hearing people in the background coughing and uh, moving things around. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping there's a sermon somewhere. Here we go. Throughout the book of Revelation, John has warned us about the beast who wages war upon the saints. Empowered by that dragon who is Satan, the beast is an apocalyptic symbol of the state whenever it assumes rights and prerogatives which belong only to God. In John's day, that beast, of course, was the Roman Empire, which viewed its emperors as deities and who demanded worship so that people could buy and sell. But John has also warned us of another threat besides that of the beast wielding the sword, 
and that is the glamour and the wealth and the seductive power of the city of man, which continually seeks to entice God's people away from the Savior and into the arms of another, depicted by John in the book of Revelation as the great prostitute, Babylon the Great. Now this morning we move into a new and what is really the final section of the book of Revelation. And as we saw last time with the seven bold judgments of Revelation chapter 16, when the cycle of bold judgments runs its course, God's wrath will be complete, intensifying those plagues which came upon Egypt in the days of Moses and the Pharaoh. The first of the five bowls of judgment come on the whole earth and all of its inhabitants. But even in the midst of that final outpouring of the wrath of God, God's people are spared because they have been sealed with the name of God and of His Christ. All of heaven resounds with the declaration of the angels and the saints before the throne, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. For all those who shed the blood of the saints will now be forced to drink their own blood, which is an apocalyptic symbol demonstrating that the holy God will punish all of those who hate Christ and his church. Now the sixth bowl judgment foretells of a great and final battle resulting in the defeat of Satan and all those allied with him. This is the battle of Armageddon, which is Satan's final assault upon the church. And Satan and all his allies, including the beast and the false prophet, who deceive the kings of the earth through demonic power, who gather together at Armageddon, that mount of gathering, for what they anticipate will be the final defeat of the kingdom of God. And when the symbolic barrier of the Euphrates River is removed, the nations rush headlong to a... Okay, I think you get the idea where this is going. Now, once again, I... I you got to love this. He's preaching this with such certainty. This, this, the beast is the state. Euphrates, uh, symbolism, symbolism. This is a symbol of this. This is a symbol of this. This is a symbol of this. It's just said in a dogmatic assertion as this is the way it is. This is, this is going to be a battle against the church. And this is going to happen. And this is, and everything is stated just as this is the way it is. I'm not going to spend any time trying to prove it. I'm not going to do anything trying to, to, to demonstrate how I arrived at this conclusion. But this is just the way it is. Once again, certainty is being presented, and I will say, at the expense of truth. Because the truth is, you're going to go through there and say, that, that's a symbol for this. 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 But in many cases, there is nothing in the Bible that says, that's how you interpret that. You interpret that as a symbol. And this is, some cases, it's just pure speculation based off previous understandings or previous interpretations that you took from other commentaries or other books. And that's the thing that drives me crazy. That's, it's, it's, it's where you have to go through this and say, okay, like for example, in, um, see, Revelation chapter 16, um, like, okay, verse 12, and the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. Now he immediately said Euphrates is symbolic. Well, based off what? Based on, when did your phrase just become simply symbolic? Just because you decided and declared it to be? Could it not be the actual Euphrates? 
Could it not actually be the Euphrates River? Like, why? If And, and again, at what point in, in, in biblical literature do you say, okay, that's symbolic, but that's literal. That's symbolic, but that's literal. That's symbolic, but that's literal. I mean... I, I, that that's where the hermeneutic that's where the hermeneutics gets very frustrating with me is like okay that that's that's literal now I know and I listen I'm very aware that in the book of Revelation there are times where something clearly says the stars are actually this or this is actually this when the text actually get, tells you this simply represents this then by all means we have to be dogmatic and go well clearly that represents this but in the other places where it doesn't do that then are we allowed to come in and then insert our supposed understanding of what something symbolizes? We, we, uh, all I'm saying is if you're going to say this symbolizes this, it's your responsibility then to demonstrate how you arrived at that conclusion. What is the basis of that conclusion? And this is even more important in preaching, letting everyone you know or let everyone listening to you know this. This is very important. How many people agree with that and how many people disagree? In other words, you have to say, look, I believe this is a symbol of this. However, if you look in biblical commentaries, very few believe that. You've got to let everyone know that you may be putting forth an idea that most reject. And then it's your job to defend and prove your theory, your thesis. But this is just, this represents this, 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 this. Now, maybe he's going to be far more careful when he gets into chapter 17. Maybe this is just review and maybe he did prove it. Considering the length of his sermons, I'm going to demonstrate. I'm going to tell you right out, he did not, because you can't preach 15, 20, 30 minutes and think that you're going to be able to take these passages and clearly demonstrate the symbolism and how you drew that conclusion. No, it's just, he's just going to be preaching certainty at the expense of truth. Let's see if I'm wrong. Maybe maybe he's going to find a way to do this in such a short amount of time that it's absolutely mind-blowing, and it's the greatest example of being able to preach in a short amount of time, yet prove and demonstrate your point accurately. We'll, we'll see. Assault Christ's church in what they think will be the final victory over Christ and his people. But instead of a satanic victory, we read of Satan's final defeat in Revelation 19 and 20 when the devil and all those allied with him are cast into the lake of fire. Now I wonder, is Satan real? Is his defeat real? And is the lake of fire real? I mean, that, those are questions. You, if, if other things in the book of Revelation are symbolic, then is, was Satan just simply symbolic for man's, you know, evil actions, that Satan is just a, a, a symbolic manifestation of man's internal, uh, you know, conflict? Is hell simply symbolic for separation from God? Is God even real? Like, at what point do you start, like, that's, that's always the problem when you go with this hermeneutic. Well, if you're going to say, well, that's symbolic, that's symbolic, that's symbolic, okay, well, then I can come along and go, well, that's symbolic, and that's symbolic, and that's symbolic, Right? It, it's just like, where, where, at what point, where, in other words, how do you put barriers or a curb to stop the symbolic interpretation, the allegorical interpretation from just running off the road? And, and you say, well, that's just ridiculous. Nobody would say that. Well, why? Because once you open that door, you've got to be able to determine who gets to say what symbolizes what. 
There's got to be a basis in how you're doing it. Well, if you're not going to demonstrate how you're doing it in the preaching, the people in the pew will think that they can just do it with anything. And you you say, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. Look at 2,000 years of church history and some of the crazy things people have come up with. And then when the seventh bowl judgment, a great earthquake, brings destruction upon Babylon the great, the proud and arrogant city of man which stands in the way of the establishment of the new Jerusalem, even as the city of Jericho prevented Joshua and the people of God from entering the promised land in the days of Israel's sojourn in the wilderness. And so when the seventh bowl is poured out, says John in Revelation 16, verse 19, the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And while the people of God await that glorious day when Jesus comes like a thief so that we might enter our eternal rest and receive our glorious promised inheritance, all those who worship the dragon and bear his mark will curse God and refuse to repent even while God's judgment is being poured out upon them. And therefore, as we move into the final chapters of this book, John will set forth in very vivid imagery the outcome of those who wage war on the saints and who persecute the church of Jesus Christ. Now, given the fact that John is writing to seven churches, facing the beast even then on what is a daily basis, the knowledge that Christ's church is ultimately victorious despite appearances to the contrary, would have brought great comfort to a persecuted church. By describing the fate of the dragon and all those who serve him, John points us ahead to the closing scene in this great redemptive drama, which began all the way back in Genesis 2 and 3. Because in the final chapters of Genesis, we see the end of the story. We're indeed given a glimpse of the final outcome of redemptive history. We now know how the story ends. And thus, as this book draws to a close in Revelation 17 and 18, we see the destruction of Babylon the Great, the proud and boastful city of man standing in the way of the new Jerusalem, which is even now coming down from heaven. And then in Revelation 19, we read of the fate of the beast and the false prophets. All those nations which neglect their proper function in providing for the public good and restraining and punishing evildoers, and who are instead deceived by the beast so that they persecute the people of God, all those nations will suffer judgment directly alongside the harlot who has seduced them. And next in Revelation 20, we read of the fate of the dragon. One day he will be cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and all his angels. And then in the final chapter of John's vision, Revelation 21 and 22, John describes for us the new heavens and the new earth and all the glories that await us as the people of God. And so in this final section of Revelation, we are brought from the opening chapters of the Bible, the creation account, the account of the fall of the human race into sin. We're brought to that glorious scene at the end of the story in which we see the final and total defeat of our enemies. We discover the recreation of all things and we learn of our glorious inheritance in Christ. Now, flowing directly out of the seventh bowl judgment of Revelation chapter 16, chapters 17 and 18 describe not only the seductive ways of the harlot Babylon, 
but detail her final destruction as well. And so when we read in verse 1 of Revelation 17 that one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. There's an important contrast being made between the harlot and the bride, the wife of the Lamb, as set forth in Revelation 21, specifically verse 9. Because there in Revelation 21, John writes, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues said to me, and notice the parallel, Come, and I will show you not the harlot, but I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And therefore, the account of the harlot in Revelation 18. Okay, this is good. This is good. Now, this one thing I do like about this is this is far better than the craziness that we were reviewing with Jack Hibbs and his conspiratorial theories about Nimrod's wife and all of the just uh, complete craziness. At least this is much more biblically based, right? So it gives the appearance of, okay, this is much more biblically based, so therefore this is much more accurate. It may, it's biblically based. It may be just as inaccurate as what we were hearing Jack Hibbs, just in a very, 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 very difficult, a very different way. But Revelation 21, 9, and there came uh, unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the, of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, come hither, I will show thee the bride of the lamb's wife. Back to Revelation 17, verse 1, and there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials and talked with me saying unto me, come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now we talked a little bit about this and I think in part one of this series, where I said, I, I do like the fact of seeing the Babylon, the great whore, as apostate Christendom or apostate church, because the contrast with the bride of Christ, the contrast with the true church being the bride, being, in a sense, pure, washed uh, by the word of God, that, that contrast with the whore of Babylon and the bride of Christ, that is a very powerful contrast. And I think that that works really, really well, and you can do a lot of different things with it. So I do like that idea um, of, of trying to contrast the two. One is the apostate church, the whore, because in the Old Testament, whenever Israel was chasing after idols, they were considered guilty of being whoredoms, of whoredoms, of being a, a spiritual whore, committing spiritual adultery, right? So that contrasts that with the bride of Christ, who is washed and, and is the faithful bride to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that contrast works really well, and I think that that's a good way, uh, and I like the fact that he did point that out, where in so far and the other, we we, had, we we didn't get any of this. So I, I do like that fact. I, I, I do like that really. I think that's really well said and really well done. And um, yeah, you, you can just contrast Revelation 21.9, Re- Revelation 17.1. If you don't get anything else from today's episode, I think that contrast gives you much to think about. The language is so very similar, but the contrast is so very stark that does that give us a clue in how to identify then the Babylon uh, Babylon in Revelation 17? Does it describe it as being Babylon is symbolic of apostate Christendom or the apostate church? You, you, you can, this would kind of lead me in that direction. Let's see where he goes. 
16 and 19, who is, in a sense, the bride of the beast, with that of the bride of Christ in Revelation chapter 20, will be great. Because while very seductive, because of her wealth and her glamour and her celebrity, the beauty of the harlot is temporary and fleeting, lasting, John says, but one hour. The harlot is the epitome of impurity and wickedness. But the beauty of the bride of Christ, on the other hand, is eternal, since the church is clothed with the perfect righteousness of her bridegroom, and therefore is a radiant and spotless bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. Now this great prostitute, shortly to be identified as Babylon the Great, sits on many waters, also identifying her with this river of Babylon, the Euphrates, mentioned in the previous chapter. As we will read in verse 15, the fact that John extends this to include many waters is indicative that her dominion extends to all peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Her sin is depicted in Revelation 17, verse 2, in terms of her adultery, which is a metaphor used throughout the Old Testament for spiritual infidelity, which is idolatry. Says John, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Now, throughout the writings of Israel's prophets, there are a number of very important references to pagan empires and nations in which they are said to be drunk on military power or drunk on great wealth or drunk on false religion and self-righteousness. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 15 through 34, the prophet speaks of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness in terms of adultery and prostitution. The prophet says that Israel loves her sin so much that she takes home lovers without even charging them her normal fee. Now, there's no question about that, that whenever Israel would go after idols and give themselves over to idolatry, that was described as adultery, spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery. That was described as, as in a sense, whoredoms or, or being a spiritual whore. There's no question about that. And again, to you have to at least acknowledge that in this section that that concept, that that imagery, I think, is clearly being borrowed because it was so prominent in the Old Testament. So, all right, I, he, he, we'll see, is he going to, specific, he just refers to Babylon as the city of man, the city of man, but it seems to me that where he, his argument seems to be going, not necessarily the city of man, it seems to be going to an apostate religious system. It seems to be going like, I would say the apostate church, apostate Christendom or, or apostate spirituality of some sort. He, he keeps referring to it as the city of man. All right, let, let's see, let, let's see if, if he clarifies at all. And Nahum 3, we read of God's impending judgment on Nineveh. In Isaiah 23 and in Ezekiel 27 to 28, we read prophecies against the cities of Tyre and Sidon, cities which boasted in their great wealth and in their military power, but which were filled with wickedness. In Jeremiah 50 and 51, which includes our Old Testament lesson this morning, we read of God's impending judgment on the historic city of Babylon, which had conquered Israel and held God's people in captivity. Now, please note, see, this is where hermeneutics gets so confusing at times and drives me crazy. So, okay, here we're going to go with symbolic. Jeremiah 
we go with literal. Now, I understand one's a historical narrative. One is apocalyptic literature or, you know, prophetic literature. Apocalyptic wouldn't fit better with the book of Revelation. So I understand that there can be symbolism used here. It's just like, but over there, literal Babylon. Here, not literal Babylon. Over here, literal this. You know, literal Euphrates. Here, not literal Euphrates. Over here, literal war and destruction. Over here, symbolic of spiritual destruction. And that's that can be so frustrating when you try to say, okay, so I need I need the decoder ring. I need the decoder ring. Okay, okay. Here is literal history. Israel is literal Israel. Babylon is literal Babylon. And all of a sudden, dun 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 dun. dun. Israel's not literal Israel. It's now the church. Babylon is not literal Babylon. It's now symbolic of the of the apostate church, or it's symbolic of the city of man. And 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 Euphrates here is not really uh, the Euphrates. It's just a a barrier that hold. And it's like uh, it's a spiritual barrier, whatever the case may be. So, um. That, I, and, and again, when you preach it the way he preaches it with such just certainty and stated as matter of fact, it, people will just embrace it. But you have to stop and go, wait, wait. So when is, when is something literal? When is something spiritual? That, that is not being difficult. That's not trying to just be argumentative. That would be a good question any good Bible student would ask. And thus, when John speaks of the great prostitute who seduces the kings of the earth, he has in mind the culmination of all of these Old Testament images. He also has in mind the fourth beast of Daniel 7, namely the city of Rome and the mighty Roman Empire, which extended to the ends of the earth. For Rome not only persecutes the church as the beast, but Rome's military prowess, her great cultural attainments, and her massive economic power had already seduced a number of Christians, as seen in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3, when John has mentioned to us already that many in the church in Thyatira tolerated and enjoyed the false teaching of Jezebel, while Christians in the church in Laodicea put great confidence in their wealth and in their success, although John has told them they are actually poor, blind, and naked, and about to come under the judgment of Christ. Now, through the use of apocalyptic imagery, John not only has in mind the city of Rome and the Roman Empire, which even then was both the beast. Okay, now stop here. So now, is he going with Babylon actually is Rome? Now, this this is one of the views we talked about. He He's weaving in lots of different views, right? It's the city of man. He seems to describe it as, well, spiritual apostasy, spiritual, you know, a, a false spiritual system that makes people guilty of fornication, of, of guilty of spiritual whoredoms. But now it's Rome. So was John like, okay, I really want to talk about Rome, but I don't want to get in trouble. So I'll just use the name Babylon. So, or that God, because if we believe it's written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God was like, okay, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to do this in code. We're going to really be talking about Rome, but we'll use the name Babylon and no one will ever catch on. No one will ever figure it out. Well, I mean, they'll figure it out sooner or later, but, but everyone at that time will be long dead. And so, or did the people read? And if, if, if it was so clear to the people reading it, would it have been clear to the people they were trying to hide it from? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, that, that, that whole theory, I have so many issues with this theory. But all right. But again, he's not proving anything. Let's make it very clear. He's stating it with certainty. 
He's not proving the point. Right? That 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 that's and I know a lot of a lot of people like that kind of preaching, but it's just like no. Anyone dealing with this, you've got to be dealing with it. You're going to be telling the people, look, we've got, we're going to be here for a, a couple of months, maybe a year, trying to take this apart because this just contains so many difficulties and there's been so much disagreement within church history. Uh, what I'm now kind of becoming more baffled by by this is his like, he almost was going, see, this, you've got the Babylon, that's the whore, and you contrast with the bride of Christ. Well, you'd be contrasting a spiritual system that is guilty of spiritual adultery with the pure, chaste, virgin bride of Christ because we are robed in his perfect righteousness. It seems like that that contrast would go, you know, the bride of Christ, there's the true church, and Babylon would be the apostate church. That, to me, would be going that direction. But now he's now turning it to Rome. Okay. I mean, at this point, is he going to just say... Babylon represents everything. Is that where we're going? I don't know. And the harlots, the great prostitute Babylon the Great, also symbolizes the city of man in every age, which through wealth. Okay, so it's not just Rome. It's not. So it's not just an apostate religious system. It's not just Rome. It's every city in every age. It's the city of man in every age. Okay, so, I mean, in other words, he's just throwing, it looks like Babylon represents everything. That, that, I mean, that what, I don't understand that approach, but let's see, does he, does he add more to it? Celebrity, luxury, seduces Christians away from Christ and into the arms of the bride of the dragon. And who, after the seduction, will leave them with nothing much the same way a female black widow spider kills its mate after he has fulfilled his obligation to his bride. And therefore, the harlot is Rome. And while at the same time is symbolic of any idolatrous nation or empire which persecutes Christ and his church, which attacks the church not with the sword, but through seduction. Like most harlots who think their actions will gain them genuine love and affection, It'll not be long before her pimp, the beast, will cast her away the moment that her glory fades. Now, just as the prophet Isaiah had been taken away into the wilderness to witness the four horsemen described in Isaiah 21, one of whom brings destruction by the way upon Babylon when all her idols are smashed to the ground, John is now caught away into the same wilderness where he witnesses the destruction of Babylon the Great. And there are two important things to keep in mind here. As we read in verse 3, Then the angel carried me away in the, in the spirit into a desert. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Now recall that in Revelation 13, John was also spirited away into the wilderness to witness God protect the woman Israel from the dragon. And now he sees a different woman, the harlot. Just as Israel was hidden away in the wilderness to be spared from the assault of the dragon so that she might inherit a glorious city with wealth beyond imagination. So here in a great reversal, the glittery and wealthy Babylon the Great will be left a wilderness, desolate, after God's judgment falls upon her. And the irony is surely, surely intentional. 
Now we know that this particular woman is not Israel because she is the one who seduces the nations and intoxicates the kings with her great wealth. Instead of being hidden away in the wilderness to be protected by God, this woman rides the beast, the same beast whom John had witnessed rising out of the sea, the beast with the ten heads and seven horn, uh, ten horns and seven heads, the same beast who is covered with blasphemous names and colored scarlet, the same as the dragon of Revelation 13, who attempted to attack Israel. Furthermore, this woman, John says, is dressed to kill, dressed to seduce. According to John, she was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. It's an image of a temple prostitute, which everyone in the first century would have grasped. Her cosmetic beauty makes her a kind of counterfeit to the true bride, the bride of Christ. And therefore, hers is an earthly glory, not the heavenly glory of the righteousness of the Savior. Her gross idolatry. Now, again, this goes back to all of the descriptions of her makes it more, to me, symbolic, if we're going to go with that direction, of an apostate church, an apostate Christendom. You've got the bride of Christ who is robed in the righteousness of Christ, and you have the harlot who is, in a sense, dressed, as he says, a temple prostitute, arrayed in purple scarlet colors, decked with gold and precious stones, pearls, having golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. You have the the imagery or the contrast of a temple prostitute with the bride of Christ. Right. I, I got no, I mean, to me, that fits perfectly, but he's thrown in Rome. He's thrown in all kinds of cities. He's thrown in so many things. If he would just kind of choose one lane, I think he, I think going with the idea that this is a contrast between apostate Christendom or apostate church with the bride of Christ, you can, you can work that to some level with that, but he keeps throwing in so many other things. Let, let's see. Let's see if he. Wow, well, I don't. I don't know where he's going to go. Let's let's just see. Idolatry is symbolized by the fact that she held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This is the drink, idolatry, which intoxicates the kings of the earth, so that they commit spiritual adultery with her, and she is clearly identified in verse five, along with her crimes. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. Having seduced the kings of the earth and allying herself with the beast to earn his favor, she too is held responsible for her crimes, which result in the persecution of the church. And thus John can say of her, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. As one writer so aptly puts it, the harlot's seductive influence and the beast's coercive violence are symbiotic. The nations bow to Rome not simply because its legions suppress insurrection, which is the beast, but also because Rome's far-flung administrative efficiency maintains societal stability and economic prosperity, which is the harlot. The threat of force and the allure of affluence work perfectly together. And so, of course, the writer says, Babylon celebrates the slaughter of Jesus' people since they refuse to buy into her economic interests. And so when Christians refuse to take the mark of the beast so as to buy and sell, 
they also cut into the wealth and the power of the harlot. And thus she celebrates the death of the saints. She celebrates when their blood is shed, as does her husband, the beast. And although she is intoxicated by her apparent success, because of this, her fate is sealed. Now this amazing connection between the power of the sword, the beast, and the seduction of the temptress, the harlot, moves John to declare, when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. It's almost as if having seen for the first time how the power of the beast and the attraction of the harlot come together in the form of the Roman Empire. John now understands, as he never did before, the great power the dragon exercises over the peoples of the earth. And John is amazed, but not for long. Because in verse 7, John tells us that it was at this point, the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads. Okay, a couple of things here, a couple of things. Now, if you say that the woman, Babylon, the beast, the beast is the governmental authority, Babylon is the religious apostate system, this would be a merging of church and state, an apostate church with a, we'll say, an evil state coming together to create a union that would be really, 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 really detrimental and messed up. That seems to be the way you would have to go, that Babylon would be, in a sense, the system, the, the apostate religious system, the beast would be the governmental authority, and it would be emerging, in a sense, of a false church with a corrupt state. That seems to be the direction it was going. Also, I think it's interesting, if when the angel, um, and again, when you go with the symbolic way of doing things, that's where it gets into question, but I'm assuming a real angel is talking to, to, to John, you know, literally, and says, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carried her, uh, carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the, and the ten horns. The angel is supposedly now going to give us some understanding of it, but I think it would be interesting, or at least this would be a good question to ask as a good Bible student. Well, wait a minute. If this, if the symbolism here is supposedly so clear, if the if the symbolism here is so obvious, then why was the apostle John? marveling. Why was he, why, why, why was, I mean, it, it should have been just clear to John, right? John should have seen it and go, oh, that makes sense. Okay. That's the, that's, that's the false religious system or that's Rome. He, did, what, would he not have known? And then the, the next question is, how do we understand the angel's explanation or the angel's supposed clarification of what this is? Does it make it clear? Let's see how he handles it. And the ten horns. Now the explanation of this mystery is as follows. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life, from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. Okay, so the beast... All right now that's that's the remember if we go back and pick up the the whole imagery the I'll go to verse three Revelation seventeen three the woman all right sits on a scarlet colored beast so the beast is the one the woman is riding so you have the woman which is 
the harlot, she sits upon the beast. She's riding the beast. And what we know about the beast, uh, not only does it have seven heads and ten horns, we know this. The beast was and is not and will be again. All right? So uh, that's just an interesting description. So the beast was, is not, and yet is. So it was there, then it's not there, and then it will be there again. Now, if we say the beast is connected to Rome, right, if, if it was the Roman Empire, then would it not be at least a good Bible to ask that the, the Roman Empire was there, then it wasn't? This There's going to be, a, in a sense, a resurrection or a restoring of the Roman Empire? Is that, is that how we understand this? Let, let's see what, what he does. Now, the beast is a counterfeit of Christ, for he is was not, and yet is to come. John's already told us that one of the beast's head was slain, which is a reference to the Nero myth, and the fact that the Roman Empire suffered what appeared to be a mortal wound, only to come back stronger than ever. Indeed, at the time of John's writing, the beast, in the form of this Roman Empire, was already persecuting the church. But John now speaks of a future beast yet to come, something implied by the sixth bowl judgment that tells us that three demonic spirits will deceive the kings of the earth and gather them together for battle against Christ's church at that mount of gathering, which is Armageddon. And this will occur, John says, when the beast comes up out of the abyss, which interestingly enough is something very similar to what we find in Revelation 20, when at the end of the thousand years of the millennial age, John says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. What prison is that? It's the abyss. And he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they're like the sand on the seashore. And they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loved, spiritual Mount Zion, Armageddon, the church. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so the beast comes up from the abyss at the time of his destruction, when those whose names are not written in the book of life are also to be judged. This, beloved, simply means that all of the events foretold in Revelation are fulfilled at the time of Christ's second coming. Now, there are two very important points we should draw from this. One, this means that the battle of Armageddon, the sixth bowl, the seventh trumpet, the sixth seal, the seventh bowl, the battle, the judgment of the beast, the judgment of the false prophet, the judgment of Satan, all of those things occur at the same time. And according to Revelation 20, this is when the thousand years are over. That is, immediately before Christ returns at the end of the age. And therefore, the millennium of Revelation 20 is a present reality lying between Christ's first advent and his second coming. Okay. All right. So, oh boy. This is so frustrating. Okay, so suppose okay, so supposedly Babylon. Okay, I'm trying to follow his logic here, right? And and as, again, instead of just it's so weird how so many of the sermons you hear on this 
On one hand, they try to act like they're being so clear and giving you such certainty. But the more you sit there and just think about it, it really starts trying to fall apart. So let's try to try to go through this. I'm going to try to clarify the sermon that we're reviewing for the where it should be the one who's preaching it will would clarify, but will not. So I'll try to go through this. Babylon is simply symbolic for apostate religious system. It is symbolic of the city of man in any age, and it is symbolic of Rome. All right. I, I guess that's that's what he tried to tell. I guess if, if we were trying to outline this. So who is Babylon? According to the sermon we're listening to, it's a, a apostate religious system. He didn't really go into great detail, but apostate religious system, because uh, the idea of being a whore is this a spiritual whoredom, a spiritual whore committing spiritual adultery. OK. All right. So we have that. Number two, it's Rome. OK, it's just it's Rome. Number three, it's, well, representative of all the cities of men in every era and every age. Okay. Now, the beast, it sounds like he, he was describing it as the Roman Empire. So, the, the beast is the empire. The, the woman is the city of Rome. I don't know why I wouldn't just use the word Rome. Okay. We, we think we have that, but the beast is also a counterfeit Christ. So the Roman empire was a counterfeit Christ, I guess. I'm trying to follow all of this. Okay. And then um, the destruction of all of this will occur at the end of the millennial, but the millennial is not an actual time of a thousand year reign of Christ. No, the millennial millennium is happening right now. It's the current period of time because he's obviously a millennial. So he believes that we're in the millennium right now. We're in the millennium right now. That that's That's where we are. And the beast is currently locked up. Satan is currently locked up, I guess. I I'm trying to follow all of this. This is so, like, it comes across so, oh, see, it makes so much sense. But then when you really start asking questions, you're like, so wait a minute, I'm so confused here. So exactly what are we to do with this? Does this have nothing to do with us at all? Well, he's trying to argue that it does. So what are we looking for? Because we're in the millennium now. Satan is supposedly bound. What are we looking for right now? Are we looking for the beast? Is is the beast now any, any, well, no, the beast would be, the, the woman would be any city and any spiritual system. And the beast would be, I don't know, any empire or like, how do we understand the beast now? I, I, I Maybe he'll make it clear here in a minute. He's only got a couple of minutes left. It is not a future hope as premillenarians teach. And second, it means. So please note, the, the millennium is not a time of future hope. There's no hope in the millennium. Let's make it very clear. And the Amil position, and I'm, I like the way he said that, it's not a time of future hope. No, it's a time right now. So right now, in the world in which you live, with death, destruction, disease, pain, that's the millennium. That's, the, that's that wonderful time of a thousand-year reign of Christ. It's happening right now as you live and breathe. That's the Amil position. So, you know, that <laughs> the millennium is not really such a great time after. In fact, the millennium is really no different than, it's really funny. The millennium goes from the first advent of Christ 
to the second advent of Christ, right? So here would be my, and again, this is just someone who embraced uh, amillennialism to some level and then started leaving amillennialism. I think this is just a a reasonable question. So if the thousand years is simply as symbolic for a time that that covers the first advent of Christ to the second advent of Christ, and during that thousand years, Satan is bound, how does this period now from the first advent of Christ to the second advent of Christ, this time that we're living now, how does it so drastically different from before Christ came? Look at about, read everything about the world that you can find before Christ. How was the world so radically different before Christ versus after Christ? That, that okay, now this, we're in the millennium now. Jesus has come, died, buried, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. You're in the millennium now. Yeah, and how is the millennium different than before? That I think that's a reasonable question. It means that the beast of John's day and age, this Roman Empire, will be resurrected through the power of Satan in those days before our Lord's return. Okay, so it is the resurrection of the Roman Empire. Is it the resurrection of the Roman Empire literally or figuratively? And if it's a literal resurrection of the Roman Empire, then could it not be a literal resurrection of the city of Babylon and Babylon? I mean, so if if the beast is a literal resurrection of the Roman Empire... It, and I mean, he, he just says it's the resurrection. He didn't use the word literal because he kind of weaves in like sometimes it's literal, sometimes it's symbolic. He, 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 it, it's hard to follow. Well, then could Babylon be, well, just re- reference to Babylon on the Euphrates. The city will be restored. Is that possible? And when this resurrection of the beast occurs, John says, the whole world will be amazed. But it also means that judgment day is at hand. Now, in Revelation 17:9, the angel reminds John, this calls for a mind with wisdom, just as it did to understand the mysterious number 666, which was the number of the beast. The first matter is that the seven heads are seven hills on which the city sits, which is very likely a reference to the city of Rome, famous for its seven hills. But throughout the prophets, mountains are symbolic of great power and are often mentioned in connection with the rule of pagan empires. Hence the fact that these seven mountains are also seven kings. Now, seven mountains and seven kings not only refer to the city of Rome and its empire, persecuting the church while John is writing, but the apocalyptic symbolism of the kings and the mountains refer to the fact first mentioned in Revelation 13 that the beasts was given authority over every people, every nation, every tongue, and reiterated here again of the harlot who sits on many waters and who seduces many peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Now, verses 10 through 11, we must concede, are the most difficult verses to interpret in all of Revelation. Indeed, the angel has told us that it calls for wisdom, and I won't pretend to have that wisdom. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. 
Now, there are probably as many interpretations and theories as to what this means as there are commentators. Most try and correlate the seven kings to the four empires of Daniel chapter 7 or to the seven king Roman emperors who follow after Julius Caesar or after Caesar Augustus through eight successive emperors, the supposition being that five of them have come and gone, that John is writing during the reign of the sixth, the one who is, and that there's one more yet to come. But although there is certainly merit to that approach, perhaps it's better not to view this succession of kings historically, but theologically. Now, the number seven, as we have seen throughout the book of Revelation, is the number of fullness or completion. And if we look at the angel's words with this in mind, it is certainly possible that the seven kings represent the entire history of fallen humanity. By the time of the coming of Christ... Five of these empires have come and gone, with John and his readers facing the sixth, which is Rome, with the seventh yet to come, which will remain for but a short time, because John says the short time is that period of time after the dragon's defeat at Calvary's cross. According to these angels, these seven kings have come and gone. One of the earlier kings, connected directly to the beast, reappears as an eighth king who will come up and immediately go to his destruction. And that, it seems to me, indicates that however we understand the relationship of seven kings to the emperors of Rome, we shouldn't overlook the fact that with these words, we are fast-forwarded by John to the time of the end. When the eighth king appears, probably in direct connection to the release of the beast from the abyss, we are once again given a picture of that final battle of Armageddon when Satan seeks to destroy the kingdom of God only to be destroyed himself. And if true, this means that we can expect an unprecedented manifestation of satanic power taking the form of a worldwide empire, which is the final manifestation of the beast with the seductive attraction of the harlot reaching full flower. And like it was in the days of Rome, The final beast will amaze the world through its great military power, its great wealth, and the deification of its leaders. And while the whole world is amazed and worships the beast, the beast is waging war on Christ's church. And therefore, unlike so much of contemporary reflection on end times, the time of the end may be characterized by unsurpassed peace and prosperity, while at the same time, because of the world's worship of the beast, the church experiences unsurpassed persecution. Now, the same apocalyptic pattern follows with the ten kings mentioned in verses 12 through 14. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. Like the seven kings, these ten kingdoms depicted by ten horns will do the bidding of the beast. These are probably the same kings mentioned in Revelation 16 in connection with this sixth bowl judgment who are deceived by the three demon spirits and who gather together Armageddon to wage war on the church, depicted here by the fact that these kings wage war on the Lamb and His chosen and called and faithful followers. 
And like the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, these ten kings will not prevail over the king of kings. But the most amazing thing about this vision is John's description of the fate of the harlot. Although she has served the beast and faithfully done his bidding, she suffers the same fate as those she has seduced and then jilted. As the old saying goes, what goes around comes around. In verse 15, we do indeed learn of the harlot's fate. And then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And so when the time of the end finally comes, Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. And the first casualty of that division is the harlot. The very same kings and nations who committed spiritual adultery with her will now turn on her. They will strip her naked. They will then burn her and destroy her. Just as ancient Rome fell under the great weight of its own immorality and was sacked by the very same nations who had profited from Roman trade and Roman order. So too the final manifestation of the harlot will see her come to an end at the very hands of those whom she had seduced. Ironically, the beast himself will become the agent through which God brings judgment on the great prostitute. For God puts it into the beast's heart to hate the harlot. And next week, Lord willing, in Revelation 18, we will listen to the two angels and this voice who comes to us from heaven and who explains to us the meaning of the demise of this great prostitute. But what should be apparent as we conclude to all those who hear the words of this prophecy is that the glories of the city of man, seductive as they are, are superficial and fleeting. The beauty, the celebrity, the wealth of the great prostitute are illusory. And the harlot only uses her charms to lead us away from our bridegroom, who is Jesus Christ, so that we might become involved in her adulterous idolatry. And let us never forget While her beauty is fleeting, true beauty is found only in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. For he purifies us from all our sins. His blood washes away every imperfection. He is making us into a holy people without spot or blemish, radiant, beautiful. And for this, the beast and the harlot will hate us, and so will the world which worships them. But in Jesus Christ, we will overcome them all, just as he has. Amen. Okay, I let that last part just play through. I'm going to do this. Now remember, the whole goal of this series is to to demonstrate to you all the different views out there. 
This one at least is so much better than the Jack Hibbs craziness that we were getting. This is at least far more biblically based. However, that that's a good thing. It's biblically based. So at least we can try to take it apart and, and ask questions biblically where the Jack Hibbs thing, it was more like having to spend time trying to argue about historical facts. Okay. So this one at least is a little bit better from that perspective. However, it can just be, even though it's better in one sense, it can be just as wrong in another. Now there's lots of issues here. So he never really specifically said, this is what Babylon is, and this is what the beast is. He threw lots of different kind of conjecture out there, but he stated a lot of it as factual. So I'm going to go with this, and, and I'm just going, and I'm going to put this more as a theory and as a the, kind of just as a my own thesis here, and we'll, maybe before the series is over, we'll either be able to prove or disprove it, but I'm at least going to mention it, okay, because if he's going to go to all of these views. Here's and I do like the fact that he acknowledged some of these verses are the most difficult to interpret in the entire book of Revelation, and there's more probably views than there are people, there's probably more views out there than there are actual commentaries written about the subject. Everyone has their ideas here, and there's going to be things we'll never truly understand about Revelation 17, and if anyone claims they have all the answers, immediately I'm going to just reject it because they don't. Anyone who acts like they've got this figured out, they don't because there's so many different views. But I think we can draw this conclusion. We seem to have a religious system, right? A religious system, the, the great whore of Babylon, right? The mother of harlots, the great whore that sits upon the beast. There's no question about it. To, you can connect that with spiritual adultery because the, the Bible uses that language. That's biblical language, right? The idea of whoredom, spiritual adultery, uh, fornication, all of this can be used to refer to a spiritual unfaithfulness. This is a spiritual giving yourself over to something else that, that spiritually you are cheating on the true God. You're giving yourself, you're being unfaithful by giving your worship and your attention to to a false worship, a false belief system. She is guilty of that. So I, I like this, that, that in some ways you can make an argument that this represents in some way, shape, or form apostate Christendom or the apostate church. There is no question the beast that she is riding with its seven heads, ten horns, that it, and then if you look at the way it's describing kings, there's no, there's no way to get around that somehow this is connected to some type of governmental, we'll, we'll see, some kingdom, kings, political power. So what you see, seem to have in Revelation 17 is the merging together of an apostate religious system with a governmental a power, a governmental authority. It's the merging of two things. And at some point, the governmental authority will like, we've got what we needed from the religious system. Now kill the religious system, destroy the religious system. And I think that there's a massive lesson in this. All right. And you can read Revelation 17 today and see if you see that. I think one is clearly a religious concept. That's the Babylon. That's the whore. There's the, there's the apostate religious system. The beast clearly is connected with governmental authority and power. And the two come together for a period of time until the beast seems placed in God's heart. 
or God places it in the beast's heart to destroy and bring judgment upon the apostate religious system. All right. Now, this is very important. In 2022, in 2022, and I will say for at least a number of years, we have a growing, growing, growing concept within evangelicalism that we need to merge ourselves almost with a political power. We need to give ourselves over to political powers and political parties so that we can supposedly, I don't know, and bring Christianity upon the nation in some kind of a political way. And so we see much more and more the church wanting to merge with political power to, in a sense, you know, bring Christ to the world by some kind of political force. Let me make it very clear. Whenever the church apostatizes itself by giving itself to spiritual adultery, by giving itself over to political power, you're just, we're going to become nothing more than spiritual whores that are going to be used by political power ultimately for their purpose, and they will discard us and throw the church out as soon as they get what they want and get what they need. The church would be simply used as a spiritual whore for the ultimate benefit of the governmental power. And that's what we see in Revelation 17. The governmental power, the the the, the church appears to be, in a sense, the apostate church, Babylon, is riding the beast, appearing to have, look, the church is in charge. But in reality, no, the church is simply being used, and, and, and again, the apostate church. And then sooner or later, look at how it ends in Revelation 17. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, they shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdoms unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou saw is that great city, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. She may have some supposed power, but sooner or later, she's going to be destroyed. I think this is a, you've got the rise of uh, an apostate religious system that merges itself with an evil governmental kingdom kind of, you know, civil authority. They merge together and sooner or later, the civil authority rises up and says, we don't need that religious system anymore. Kill it, destroy it. We didn't want it in the first place. We used it. We got what we wanted. Now discard it. No matter what, no matter what you do with Revelation 17, right? Because you just saw, he threw out so many different things, so many different things. He never proved one thing. Make sure you understand what you just heard was a sermon where he never proved one thing. He never even attempted to prove it. He just stated as dogmatic, this is how you interpret it. He didn't even give you the interpretive key, nothing. What we can say, he did a, some good job in contrasting the, the whore of Babylon with the bride of Christ. He did do some good contrasting here or there, but he never really proved anything. I, I will just argue this. Do you think, I will, I will have to end with this, we're an hour and 18 minutes I would ask you to consider the the Babylon, the whole, the great whore, just at least in your mind, consider it as being an apostate religious system. I say apostate Christendom, the apostate church. 
and it merges itself with the political power. Do you think the beast and, and the ten horns, the seven heads, all of that deals with some kind of political earthly kingdoms? And then the church merges with it, and then the, the earthly kingdoms, because God places it in their heart, rises up and destroys the religious system. Just, I'll just throw that out there, and you can tell me whether you agree or disagree with that perspective. All right, we'll stop there for now. We'll be back on shortly. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Sorry, we went an hour and 20 minutes, but we, we had to finish this. We had to finish it, so... There we go. We'll continue working on uh, this in our series, Identifying Babylon. I don't know if we're ever going to truly identify it. That one was frustrating, but it was far easier to kind of follow in certain ways than the Jack Hibbs stuff that was so bad. But we'll we'll return to Jack Hibbs at some point and at least review one or two more because he still really hasn't even identified Babylon. At least this came closer to give us, I guess this came, at least this threw some ideas out there. Well, Babylon is this and it represents this and it represents this and the beast represents this. And it, it threw a lot of concepts out there. But it, it was, what was frustrating about this one, there was no attempt to even try to justify or prove how these conclusions were being derived. We're just like, this is how it is. Don't question it. And I'm like, ah, no, I, I, I've got some questions. But I think that there's a lesson in that. Religious system, governmental powers. Throughout church history, the one thing I do know about church history, whenever those two come together, people die and religion is corrupted. All right. Thanks for listening. God bless.